Hi, I'm Alan Altshul. You may remember me from this plummet. No, let me start it again. Hi, I'm Alan Altshul. You may remember me from... I do that again. One more time. Hi, I'm Alan Altshul. You may remember me as Pummet and Uranic from The Next Generation, and the Tikarian Sandalmaker and Loomis from Voyager. You're listening to Trek Untold. Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. Our guest this week is someone whose face you've seen a lot over the last few decades on television, but you might not be able to figure out why. If you search for his name on IMDb, you would be disappointed to discover how slim it is. But the reality is that those TV credits are not where his body of work lies. This week, we're talking to Alan Altshuld, a performer who spent a good chunk of his career in commercials and on stage. His memorable face and penchant for high-pitched screaming has landed him a ton of gigs for commercials you have definitely seen across this nation, but he's also very much a fine, skilled actor who has spent a lot of time in theaters throughout America, doing some shows that we're going to talk about today, and one of which does have a Star Trek connection. And speaking of Star Trek, you've seen Alan four times in this franchise, twice on The Next Generation and twice on Voyager. You would have seen him first as Pommet on the episode Starship Mine and Uranic on The Gambit Part 1 in TNG, both times wearing a ton of makeup. And later, he was a Takarian sandal maker in the Voyager episode False Prophets, this time without any of the makeup, but hey, they made up for it in his last Star Trek appearance, which was as the Katadi alien named Loomis from the episode Day of Honor. And boy, did he have a lot of makeup in that one. I'm proud to say that Alan hasn't actually done a lot of interviews, and even less so, talked about his experiences on the sets of Star Trek. So when I call this show Trek Untold today, this is one of those episodes where it's very much the truth. We uncovered some never-heard-before stories about Star Trek here, and there's a few fun surprises along the way in this interview that I don't want to spoil for you, so stick around. Oh, and by the way, as it also turns out, Alan auditioned for a major role on Voyager, and he actually got pretty far along in the audition process with it. But you're going to have to stick around to see who he almost was on board that Intrepid-class ship. So stick around and maybe grab yourself some Little Caesars pizza, you'll find out why in a little bit, and get ready to meet the one and only Alan Altschuld. But before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you to follow Trek Untold on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold, all one word. You can get show updates, check out some fun memes, and let me know what you think about what's going on with the current events in the Star Trek universe. You can also support this show directly on Patreon at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support this show for as little as $2 a month. At higher tiers, you can listen to the shows before they come out, know about my guests well in advance, and even have a chance to ask them questions, get transcripts of these episodes to make sure you get all the info, and more benefits coming soon, including watch parties and live streams. But that's all dependent on more fans like you coming over and letting me know you want to be a part of events like that. If you want some Trek Untold merchandise, check out our store for gear and apparel, including shirts, hats, stickers, water bottles, notebooks, and a whole lot more. New designs will be added throughout the year, so it's always worth taking a peek. Trek Untold also has an Amazon shop where you can peruse everything Star Trek, sci-fi, and geeky on Amazon in one convenient location. If you're looking for a gift for the Trekkie in your life, or maybe want to see some of my favorite non-Star Trek things that you can get for yourself, check out the link for my Amazon shop in the show notes on the audio version and in the description below this video on YouTube. If you're listening to us on iTunes or any other audio platforms that allow for ratings and reviews, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review to help out this show. If you're watching it on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to us at youtube.com at trekuntold and give the video a thumbs up and a comment. All of these things help more people find this show and to continue growing and bringing you awesome guests each and every week. Now, without further ado, let's beam in this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining us on the other side of the screen, we have Mr. Alan Altschuld today with us. Alan, how's it going? Going well. Thank you. Good to be here. 
It's really cool to have you here because I don't think you know you've done a lot of these interviews before, and uh, I feel honestly I pretty honored to actually get you here because uh, you've had quite a career. Well, it, it's 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 been long and it's had its ups and downs, but uh, it's still going. I'm still doing. I've had uh, as I said peaks and valleys, and um, and now I'm actually I'm getting to the point where I'm. Uh, I took a hiatus. I was doing other things, and now I'm I'm ready to get back into it. All right, well, I'm very excited to kind of run down the uh, career path, the career journey of Alan Altshul today, which of okay. course ties into Star Trek, and that's where sure. we're gonna kind of kick this off a little bit. And I'd like to ask you, Alan, what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? Did you grow up watching it as a kid? I, I watched it. I watched some of it. I, I don't know. I don't think I watched it a lot, um, but I was aware of it, and I did watch it occasionally. Um, and I, I think. I didn't really pay much attention to it until uh, I was in a theater company in Los Angeles. And uh, two of the members were, one of them was uh, Judy, Judy Levitt. The other one was her husband, Walter Koenig. And they are now you know, longtime friends of mine. And so that's when I had my close encounter with, uh, with Star Trek. So, well, I, I got to press you right there because, you know, we're okay. gonna, I got to ask you about that, working with Walter Koenig and his wife. So tell me a little bit about it. What, what was the show you guys worked on together? Uh, well, we, we were in a, in a theater company together. And so uh, and Walter wasn't doing any plays at that time. He was helping to produce. And I actually produced a play that he directed uh, huh. some many years ago. I can't remember what the name of it was. But his wife and I did, uh, we did traveling shows with a... Uh, a troupe called the L.A. Troupe, and we did shortened versions of classical plays that fit into a class period. So they, the students had studied the uh, whatever play we were going to do, and uh, Judy and I did several plays together. That's really cool. You know, I actually had Walter on this show uh, some time ago, in fact. Oh, and, great. You know, we talked a little bit about some theater work also, because he did actually show Mark Leonard. He did Waiting for Godot with Mark Leonard. I believe it was right. Waiting for Godot. And, uh, uh, you know, I always feel like Walter was, is such like an actor's actor, but yes. because of what happened on Star Trek and just, I guess, getting typecast and his, his you know, relationship with the sci-fi world and coming to terms exactly. with what he was in, in that world, he, he sure. really never got the chance to, like, really flex his muscles the way he deserved to. No, no. He was a wonderful man. In fact, uh, back on the shelf here, I have his, uh, his book right there, Work Factors, right <laughs> which, which I enjoyed because, I, you know, you think you know somebody and then you read their autobiography and you learn a whole lot more. Yeah, oh, that's really cool. Uh, I didn't know that, so I'm glad we got to, right off the bat, we got to learn a little Star Trek connection. That's really awesome. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, all right, Alan, let's, let's dig a little into the past now of your journey, okay. and let's talk about your secret origin story. So oh, can you tell us where you were born, who your parents were, and what they did, and what little Alan wanted to be when he grew up? Oh, my goodness. Uh, my, I was born in Cleveland, Ohio, and grew up in the eastern suburb of, of Mayfield Heights, and my dad was in the restaurant business. He was mostly a, a deli man. Oh. And so we always had good corned beef and pastrami and all that. And so was I grew up with the kosher great- deli in Cleveland, Ohio. Yes. Yes. Wow. Um, it wasn't kosher, but kosher style. Kosher style. Yeah. Uh, um, and he shared the space with a bakery, which was my favorite. It's like this, the smell of fresh bread and fresh pastries and I used to get as a kid just remember staring at the cases and all the, these these desserts just sugar laden and uh, uh, salivating and, and I used to get taste of everything it was, it was a great experience and my mom was uh, she was a mother mostly she she was a, a housewife but then she went on to work in retail uh, she loved she loved people she loved selling clothes so she's she uh, sold women's clothing for many years uh my parents the year that i graduated college was the year my sister graduated high school 1976 and they moved they left after having been born and raised both of them in cleveland ohio they moved to california i think they thought they, they were done with the, the winters the snow they just had it and my brother was already off and and uh exploring the west so we all wound up on the same side of the country which is kind of what they wanted and i studied well what what i wanted to do back to your question i i was writing and producing plays as a kid we did them in the backyard um 
we did them somewhere's garage and we used, we had concessions we would sell candy and popcorn and all that stuff but but i i always wanted to be an actor i mean so i thought i wanted to be a, a concert pianist but uh, i gave that up because it was just too limiting to be sitting at a keyboard for the rest of my life but um i was i played the head munchkin in the wizard of oz in kindergarten and uh that's when you know the bug bit so the rest star is, is born on uh, the yellow brick road right and i went on you know high school i played i was the quintessential you know guy who got all the big roles in high school playing old men it wasn't <laughs> until i got much older that i started playing younger younger men so Go figure. <laughs> and now, now I've grown into my old age. I've, in fact, I had an audition uh, this afternoon that I self-taping. Uh, I'm playing grandpas now. So I was going to say I thought you're playing twenty year olds now. No, no, I did that. Once. I had to play someone uh, younger than myself in a play, and I dyed my hair because I was just starting to get gray at the time. Um, <laughs> so that was the first time I played younger. <laughs> now, That's did it. you? Did you go to uh, school for performing arts once you got through with high school? I did. I, I uh, after high school, I uh, went to Ohio University, which at the time was a member of the professional actor training programs, um, which were I'm not sure if they exist anymore. Uh, but had a, an amazing uh, professor there, uh, Bob Hobbs, and uh, it, it was very intense. I, I unfortunately only got to work with him for a year because he transferred to. Uh, uh, Washington University in, in the, the University of Washington in, in Seattle, and it was too far for me to go to leave Ohio. And but I, I got amazing training there, doing uh, everything. It was very intense. Uh, we did all kinds of uh, tap, uh, ballet, uh, modern dance. We had fencing, dialects, voice work, singing. There was nothing that that was left. Of. And on our uh, holidays, we were expected to go to New York to learn how to function in the city, how to ride the subways, how to audition in the city. Um, not that we were going to get jobs, with, but just to to ready us for. So a lot of training is just the acting work, but this was also practical how to how to live as an actor. I think that's really fascinating because you know, like I went to art school, I did the art school experience, and I kind of know, you know, one of my things was there wasn't really a lot of that practical stuff. We had like one or two teachers in my senior year that were telling us things and some of them were useful. Uh, you know, like one teacher told us really great things about how to be professional. The other one kind of inflated our heads with nonsense. Like, you know, right. Oh, right off the bat, you can charge this much money for a gig. And I'm like, I've still never charged that much money for a gig. Uh, so it's really cool that you actually got like real world experience as part of that. Yeah. It, he, the first day of class was something he called the uh, New York audition. So it, it was going to be, uh, it was the worst experience it would be the worst experience of your life so it was just preparing us for what the world or it would be the best experience three people within the first month dropped the drop quit the class and they were i think they were all grad students that were undergrads and grads in that class and he he was tough he was but i learned so much i mean i remember just as if it were yesterday these auditions where um <laughs> he asked me to do a monologue from a play that i had done that year in college and as in the middle of the, uh, the monologue, he stopped me and started reading off all the dialects I had written down on my resume. And he wanted me to change the dialects, uh, the, the dialects every time he said British, Spanish, uh, Israeli. He would just yell them out and want just to see if he could, you know, uh, rile me or just get me uh, uh, messed up. But, and he did. But I just went with the flow. And one time he said, uh, so do you have legs? I said, what? I said, Let's see your legs. So I had to roll up my pants and he said, okay, continue the monologue. And I started to unroll the pants. He said, I didn't say to roll them down, put them back up. So he had me do this monologue, changing the dialects every other line with my pant leg, one pant leg rolled up. So it was a, it was an experience I've never forgotten. So, but I did learn how to act too. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it's, you know, one part acting, one part improv, and also one part just learning how to survive, literally, and to cope. Right. And he, he was not himself. He was playing a role. He was playing a role of this, this jerk director. He, he chose one person in the class and this beautiful woman who's still in theater. Uh, and he, he looked at her and said, 
you don't have to do anything. You, you don't need to audition. You're exactly what we're looking for. And she really wanted to do her monologue. She wanted to audition. No, 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 no. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> you are perfect for this. And he just went overboard. So, and then some of the people just got the worst of him and she got the best. She was very frustrated by it. So is it fair to say that most of your career has been in theater more so than on TV and on film? Well, let's say lots of theater, um, a lot of commercials. I mean, that's, I made a a good deal of my income from commercials and uh, I'm still making money from commercials. So it's good. I've had the same agents since 1988. And that's, that's an accomplishment in and of pretty, itself. Pretty amazing. And they're still, they still support me and um, hopefully I'm supporting them. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's a fun experience to, to uh, create a character within the span of 30 seconds say, or, or a minute. Um, I've had a, a lot of good experience. I've worked with some amazing people, some amazing directors who went on to direct films. So you're going to help me out a little bit here because, you know, when I, when I check a filmography on IMDb, you know, it usually only has TV and film and sometimes video games, things like that. But, you know, for things like commercials, I don't even know where to look. So I'd love it if you can kind of fill me in a little bit, like some of the stuff you did, maybe some things we might recognize you from. Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, I think the last one I shot was actually when once things started opening up after COVID, uh, it was a big production. It was an AT&T commercial. I think it had something to do with... Uh, all of the workers, people who were out on the line doing their jobs during COVID. Yeah, all the essential and I, workers. I, right. And I, I played a line and I was lifted up in this bucket and, and it was shot in a, uh, an old classic movie theater, downtown LA. And it never aired. I, I mean, they spent millions they had to for this, this experience and I never saw footage of it, never saw anything. But the one before that was uh, a Super Bowl commercial for uh, Stella Artois with uh, Jeff Bridges and Sarah Jessica Parker. And I uh, played the piano in it. So my music uh, background served me well. And although I'm actually not playing the piano in the commercial, <laughs> uh, in the background. And uh, so I, I, did, I did well on that commercial. It paid well. I, my first big commercial was uh, soon after I got to LA was for Little Caesars Pizza. I, I had a, Something about me just elicits people casting me in roles where I have to scream at the top of my lungs. And uh, this was a Little Caesars pizza commercial where uh, it was called the Vegetarian Society. You probably could find it on YouTube. And uh, there's a room of these hippie-like people. Vegetarians were incensed by this commercial. They wrote nasty letters to Little Caesar because they're selling their all-meat pizza. So I'm just strumming on a guitar. Being my hair was very long at the time, uh, and this pizza comes moving into the door. So for some people, five different kinds of meat on a pizza is their wish come true. For others, their worst nightmare, and the door opens on a, a an office where it says Vegetarian Society. The door opens, and we all scream at the top of our lungs, like throw the guitar off into the other side of the room. And that was it. And uh, it, it, that was my first taste of a, uh, of a national commercial, you know, people recognizing me on the streets and, and, and also uh, lots of money coming in the mail. It was, it, it was, it, I was, uh, I just, I was out here from New York because I was living in New York and was subletting my apartment, uh, not knowing whether I was going to move out here. And uh, I was living with my parents at the time. And my dad got a kick out of uh, these fat envelopes coming with all the residuals. And and in those days, you could make big bucks. Nowadays, it's not so much. Uh, everything has been splintered into new media and so on. So uh, uh, it was good. It was it was fun. And I was. Uh, and then I said, "Okay, I'm staying." <laughs> and my commercial career kind of took off. Yeah, I kind of wonder, uh, you know, because we talked about a little bit of your upbringing, and I see there's a menorah in the background also that you have there. And you mentioned that a lot of the roles have been, you know, a certain type where it's you screaming or whatever. And I wonder, like, how much yeah. of that plays into, like, perhaps a Jewish stereotype of, like, the nebbish or the schmender kind of character that's oh, portrayed, well, you know? Is that, is that the thing you feel like you faced? I think that probably, I mean, the, the character, and I know it's going to come up in uh, Baywatch, um, is another scene where we're in the cave and I scream at the top of my lungs. And one of my uh, uh, 
reels, demo reels was a series of me screaming at the top of my lungs. <laughs> it's not a solo reel, it's a scream reel. Yes, yes. So, yeah, it, I, I think there's obviously uh, Hollywood sometimes lacks imagination. So they, they want to they hire you for what you look like, obviously. And, and uh, I don't care. You know, I did actually, uh, after I did do a movie with, uh, before I, I came out here with Woody Allen and, uh, I'd actually, I had several lines in it that were eventually cut and which I didn't know about. I remember watching this, when it first uh, radio days first came out, uh, I was watching, because I knew when the scene was going to, to happen and I saw myself on the left side of the screen from the audience walking across and then it was cut. It, the lines that I had were no longer in. Uh, Woody Allen often writes and shoots lots of stuff and then he edits down and he, he became the narrator. So the lines that I had were going to introduce the next scene and there was a great... Uh, physical comedy bit that we had throwing things and hitting people and all gone. I never saw it, never will. But uh, that was after I did uh, my first movie when I had a speaking line, which was the money pit. Yeah. Let's talk about the money pit. In fact, that's with Tom Hanks and Shelley Long. And your scene yes. is in fact with Tom Hanks. You're the yes. Volkswagen Beetle that's covered in lights. You're the driver of that car. Yes. It, it, <laughs> I was a nervous wreck. I have to say, um, I auditioned uh, with uh, for Richard Benjamin director and uh, i was nervous with that but it was one line i said they testing missiles here or what and it was a running joke throughout the film not particularly successful but um shooting with tom was was very uh calming for me he was very grounded and, and friendly and he he has his cleveland experience where he worked uh, at the great lake shakespeare festival so he felt he, t- he shared with me the story about how he and I'm sure it's, he's talked about it in interviews about how he grew up as an actor in Cleveland on the stage there uh, doing Shakespeare. So, but it, I, I was a wreck because uh, I had to drive this vehicle, um, a stick shift, which I was very, not, not very good at. And I had to come around the corner and uh, I couldn't see because the lights were off. They didn't want the lights showing into the camera. It was Gordon Willis. On behind the camera, which was amazing, uh, and Richard Benjamin on the walkie-talkie, telling me what to do, when to do it, and we had some false starts, and it was difficult. But Tom, really, he helped me through that whole thing. I can't uh, thank him enough. I mean, it seemed like a rough shoot just based on the fact that it's nighttime, you can't see anything. It's pretty, uh, pretty apparent right. that you really and can't the see lights anything. are shooting in right directly in my face. So yeah, uh, I did. I, I and it's the first, first big movie. I mean. It's not just that it's intimidating. It's also the fact that you were just literally covered in lights. Plus, let's not forget there's glare probably from your Volkswagen Beetle with all the bulbs on it. And not only that, that actually wasn't so bad. The generator for the lights was in the back seat. And so it was making so much noise I couldn't even think. And they, they did it in two shots anyhow. So I, we drove up the driveway and then they cut. And then we shot the scene where uh, Tom gets out of the car and I say, the line, they testing missiles here or what? So, and not many people know this, but I knew it the second I saw the film. Because it's an outdoor shoot, it's at night, there's noise. Uh, it was uh, looped. Somebody else looped my line. So my first line in the movie was actually not me speaking. My mouth is moving. And they did a good job of doing it, but it wasn't me. I still get residuals. I get my, now I think I gross about 15 bucks a year now still. So from Universal, which is right uh, right down the street from here. Well, for all our audience people that are listening right now, go ahead and go rent uh, or buy on Amazon or wherever. <laughs> go, go go ahead and get the money pit. And let's get let's get that up to 20 bucks this year. How about all, that? All, all over the world, yes. <laughs> but, yeah, anyhow. Now, you already mentioned also uh, that you did an episode of Baywatch, which I is called, has, has the incredibly long title of K-Gas, the Groove Yard of Solid Gold. Uh, yes. You were Basil Frankakos, or Frankakos. Nobody could know. Nobody knew how to pronounce the name, and so I just said, "Okay, this is it. This is my character. This is how we're going to say the name." And, and for the audition, I just they wanted some funny dialect, and I came up with this pseudo Eastern European thing that uh, that they all laughed at, and so that 
all the uh, people who auditioned for it uh, had to apparently. Uh, uh, um, I have to tell you that that uh, a high school friend of mine was a producer and writer on the show, and he he called me in for the audition, but did not tell any of the producers that he knew. So I got it on my own, fair and square. Um, but I remember talking. I, I can't. The dialect was. I can't do it right now. It'll, it'll come to me. But I remember uh, it was a fun shoot because we got to work on uh, a different beach every day. So all up the, down the coast from, from Santa Monica all the way up to Leo Carrillo, which is right on the border of Ventura County. Um, so it was beautiful and, and uh, fun. It was a lot of laughs. And I'm quite jealous that you got to be tied up to, with Pamela Anderson. I mean, I was that's a story. Pamela Anderson and, and David Charvet. He was there too. And he's not um, as important, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> and he, uh, the three of us, they were setting up lights, so they were waiting for the lights to shift. We were in this cave, um, so we had a lot of time to kill. So we, uh, I don't know who started it, but we started singing Motown songs. So the three of us were just kind of rocking out and singing, and we had a great time. It was, she was fun to work with, and, uh, and, and so was the Hoff. It was a lot of fun, too. We had some laughs but during our scene, so uh, it was fun. I, I, I enjoyed I think I've enjoyed everything I've done so far. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is sponsored by Triple Fiction Productions. Celebrating 15 years in business in 2023, TFP creates 3D-printed Star Trek and sci-fi-inspired items that fit into any collection. Whether you're a cosplayer who wants a Starfleet phaser, Bajoran tricorder, or a Klingon dagger, or a toy collector looking for that special accessory or diorama to make your figures truly stand out, Triple Fiction Productions has exactly what you need. And for you figure fanatics, that includes products that are the perfect size for Galoob, Mego, Playmates, and everything in between. All products are 3D printed in the U.S., with new designs constantly being updated on their website. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, where the more you order, the more discounts you receive. TFP also has a pay-what-you-want section, where clearance or misprinted items are available at a discounted price. Best of all, every product can be shipped worldwide. As a special bonus for listeners of this show, Trek Untold has a special discount code just for you. Enter UNTOLD10 at checkout for 10% off of all orders with no minimum purchase required. That's 10% off using UNTOLD10. To see all of their products, head to triple-fictionproductions.net. Or to stay up to date on their newest products, find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Triple Fiction Productions where something is only impossible until it happens. Hi, I'm Brayden. And I'm Connie. We're the hosts of the fun-filled food podcast, Epicurean Unicorn. On Epicurean Unicorn, we converse with food industry professionals. Uh, Connie, aren't we food industry professionals? That is what we tell people. Okay, all kidding aside, on Epicurean Unicorn, we bring our combined 40 years of food industry experience directly to you through conversations with other industry professionals. We focus on bringing you inspiring stories and current topics that are affecting the foods you enjoy every day. Plus, there's a lot of fun banter. Um, only on the episodes without you, Brayden. Hey! If you've ever wondered how to make the best banana sandwich, or if there's a library dedicated to sourdough... Uh, spoiler, there is. Or what the future of sustainability in the food industry looks like... Then this is the podcast for you. Do both your ear holes and your pie hole a favor and check out Epicurean Unicorn, a podcast for food lovers from food industry professionals. You can find and subscribe to Epicurean Unicorn on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our crazy work adventures on all social media by searching at Parados US. Nailed it. Uh, Brayden, that's a different show we aren't affiliated with. But Jacques Therese was on episode three. Check it out on all major podcast platforms. Well, anyway... Epicurean Unicorn, a magical adventure for foodies everywhere. Listen anywhere quality podcasts are found. Bye. That's not how we sign off. Bye. Be seeing you. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. 
All right, well, Alan, let's beam into our Star Trek discussion, and we okay. have four appearances to talk about here in the franchise, so let's begin with the very first one, which is from the six-season TNG episode, Starship Mine, written by Morgan right. Gendel. Uh, he also wrote the very famous Inner Light episode. Uh, mm. So talk to us about how you got cast for the role of Pomet, the very interesting, curious-looking uh-huh. alien. Yes, actors sometimes need other jobs to uh, pay the rent. My other job at the time was working... Doing uh, working retail in a children's clothing store. The owner of the store's husband was a tennis pro, and one of his students was Jerry Taylor. So Jerry Taylor, one of the producers of, of Star Trek, uh, and we, we met, and I told her that I was an actor, and she, I also I already knew that she was a, uh, a producer and writer on Star Trek. And she says, "Well, you know." Give me your picture and resume, and I'll keep you in mind, and we'll we'll have you come in. And you know, people say that in Hollywood a lot, but she actually did call me in, and um, and I got it. Uh, it was it was a great experience, um, and fun. I mean, how much fun to to be running around the Enterprise with uh, dressed in these funky suits. The I don't know if you want to see this now. The, we'll uh, come back to that in a minute. Yeah. Started, okay. Um, but but. It was so much fun working with all those people. Some people later went on to bigger roles in the Star Trek universe. Patricia Tallman was fun. I have, uh, and I wish I had pulled them out, but some photos that we took on the set, just hanging out, uh, having fun. And uh, I can't remember the other fellow's name. Anyhow, it'll, it'll come to me. But uh, it, it just was, it was so much fun. And, and you get uh, the whole scene where I got shot in the leg with the crossbow. Uh, by Picard was although I didn't work with him because it was done in separate shots. Um, there's a side story here. Uh, Paramount every once in a while does uh, they do auction off their costumes, and I received a fan letter from a, a fan in Arizona, I believe it was. There were two costumes. There was the the costume, the hero costume, and then there was the stunt costume. Um, for because they had to cut a hole in the leg where they would attach the arrow because it was screwed into my leg. Um, and so this gentleman had purchased both of those costumes and put them on mannequins in his home office. He said he wanted my picture and my my, res, uh, my autograph, and uh, I sent it to him because I thought, why not? So that was kind of fun. Yeah, that is really fun. And also the fact that you're basically a, an inner meme. You know, there's, there was the old Skyrim meme of, you know, I used to be a guardsman until I took an arrow to the knee. You right. used to be a, a starship terrorist until you took a crossbow to the knee. Right. But how much fun? I mean, how often? I mean, I don't know. It, was, it wasn't the arrow who killed me. That, that was, because uh, I believe that, that nobody dies. And, or, yeah, I think you were just paralyzed like, due to some poison on it. Right. Yeah. And, and until the, the burying sweep came through. Yeah. Like, I, can't believe I remember that. <laughs> uh, uh, and that that's what got me. But uh, but how much fun to, to play, essentially play dead. To, yeah. That stuck in the the, the, uh, the leg with that. And some of my movement training from college came in handy and to fall and perish. So, but it was fun just uh, crawling all over, you know, up and down the ladders. And, and it was, uh, I could have asked for anything more. Uh, more. It's great. You already alluded to this a few moments ago. In fact, you have something, and so let's talk about that. So you got to be right. an alien, so you got to have, of course, the alien makeup. You got to get all specially made and everything like that. Right. So talk to us about this makeup and what that process was like every day. Of all the uh, the makeup jobs that I worked on Star Trek, this took the longest because it was a partial prosthetic, and they had to blend it into my skin because the you know the camera picks up everything. So uh, it took the first day because they were just figuring it out. This is after they've done a life mask of, of me and, and created this, which I still have, uh, this, this partial prosthetic um, with the suction, suction cups. Uh, but it took five hours the first day. Wow. And it took a good hour and a half just to remove it because they were going to reuse it. Uh, I can't remember if this is the one we used all week long or not. It, it may be that there was a, a backup, but I think this might, because they had no use for it, which is why I have it now because it, it was done. Um, anyhow, this is the prosthetic piece. And 
I'll, uh, I can put it on my face here. And uh, that's how it fit. And I blended all of that in. And I had like, these green uh, uh, extensions that were uh, put into my hair. And then the a chin piece. I do this. <laughs> and I do this. That's That was me. The old uh, <laughs> tentacles. Tentacle face. That's amazing. <laughs> so that was fun. Um, but it, it, again, I, I remember the makeup people. And again, I'm getting to work with Michael Westmore. I yeah. Mean, he's legendary. His family is, is legendary in Hollywood. Um, and the, the artists that worked on that show and on me were amazing. And they kept saying, you're so patient. You're just sitting so quietly for five hours. I said, I'm making a lot of money doing this and I'm having a great time. So I'm going to complain. No, I'm not going to complain. I'm shocked to hear that, that was actually a five-hour makeup job, five and a half hours. That's deceptively complex. Well, uh, yeah, and, and they obviously had to get it down because the you know, producers looking at the uh, the clock and knowing that I need to be on set by a certain time. Yeah. So, and it was great that, that to my first big guest star on the show. So that was uh, was a big deal. Now, I had read that Michael Westmore said that makeup was originally supposed to be a fuller face treatment. It would have been even more makeup on your face. Do you remember doing any any test makeup or anything like that or knowing about that beforehand? No. For this for this character? Yeah, or, for this character, yeah. Oh, I, I, I wasn't aware of that. I mean, okay. they probably I – mean, because the other uh, – the two other aliens I played were all, you know, complete prosthetic, just over-the-head masks, which were easier to to do. Harder as an actor to function, but I also one of the things that I studied in college was mask work. So I was able to use my body and to, and they, they I know how to emphasize the parts of my my uh, prosthetic that would move. So I think that helped. Now we already mentioned Patricia Tallman, who, by the way, she's also been yeah. a guest on this podcast. So anybody who yeah, hasn't heard the episode, that. go back and check it out. It's really good. Uh, I, I, I've already seen it. Yes. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So it's Alan Altschul approved. So make sure you check it out too okay. if you're listening. Please do. Yes. And that episode also has Tim Russ went on to be Tuvok. Uh, you got yes. Glenn Morshauer, yes. who that's, was a track regular. That's the name I forgot. And Tim Desar, and I don't know if he played in any of the other episodes. Um, yeah. He was the other one. Yeah. So it's a fun cast. And we did mention, you know, Patrick Stewart is there too. He wasn't in, he wasn't shooting you with the crossbow, but. Uh, right. I believe you still did get to do a little bit of work with him, right? I mean, did you get to hang yes, out with him yeah, all yeah. upset? I mean, he how was, was he? To the side. And, I mean, just, he's an actor. He's a guy. Yeah. <laughs> we're all working together. And, and he, there was no, there were no heirs. There were, you know, he was, uh, he was, all of the, the guest stars were terrific to work with. They really were very supportive. And, and I, I worked on shows where that hasn't been the case because you're a guest star, you're coming, you're working this week and then you're gone. And they want to work with the people they know. Or they just, they don't want to work off camera if you have a scene together. So I won't name names, but. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the cool things too about this, I would imagine a cool experience for you is the fact that this entire episode is more or less happening with Picard versus the terrorists on the empty Enterprise. So you're getting to walk right. around this amazing set and you're basically having carte blanche because there's not really that many people there, not really that many other right. actors in that case. Right. Uh, so, you know, I guess let's take a step backwards for a minute and just say, you know, first time you saw this set, what was that like? Was it anything like you'd seen before? I, I just got goosebumps thinking about it because it, it it just because here's this this iconic universe that that, that seen on television and we're in it yeah. we are characters in this so uh, I think I said earlier just it was like being a kid just playing on this big toy and and uh, uh, it was just so much fun to be able to to do what we did and to play a bad guy too. Now, you return to TNG one season later in the episode Gambit, first part of Gambit, that is, as uh, an alien named Uranic. Uh, yeah. Now, you know, that must have been a busy day in the makeup chair, just not based on how long it would t- take, but just the fact that there were so many other folks that day doing a lot of makeup. So, uh, again, let's go back to this makeup process. And sure. you mentioned already that Pomet was, was pretty long, but how arduous was this one? Was this one? This really- was not arduous. Really? It not at all? Because, you know, your hair, the hair is, you know, they, they probably spent more hair time on the hair than they did on the mask. Um, and there's so much, I mean, the important part of of that character, I think because you're wearing a mask is in the eyes. Um, uh, so it, it it wasn't, it didn't take that long. It was, it was pretty quick, which I think, again, the producers 
We're all for that. It takes much less time to to do that. They, they just have to blend in the area around the eyes and the mouth because Uranic spoke a lot. So that's so there was a lot of touch-ups going on in the glue. This is glued to my lips. So that's going to affect the way I speak. Um, and again, the mass training helped. I also had, I remember that they had these press-on nails and I, I had to eat in that first scene. So I had to pick up the food and I was afraid that, that you know, the nail was going to, because I'd never had anything like that on my fingers. But they, they did the most amazing uh, airbrush job on my fingernails. And they kind of scraped them up to make kind of gross and, and uh and I had to pick up that food and kind of enjoy it. That Durag was my favorite uh, of, of all of my characters oh. that I played. And part of that was it was it was great working with Jonathan Frakes. I mean, he, he's he was so I mean, he just knows what he's doing. He knows how to add to a scene. I mean, he lifted. I mean, the scene was good to start with, I think, but he made it better. Uh, he made me better. Um, so it, it was it was. A great experience. And then because you're eating food is also a problem because you're eating these funky little things. They're supposed to be food from the future, freeze-dried, whatever they were, and with these nails, and then talking and eating, and you can't really eat a lot because you have to say all these lines, but uh, somehow I got through it. <laughs> yeah, I was actually looking at the scene, by the way, and I did notice how gently you did pick up that food. Uh, but, you know, I'm curious to, I'm trying to figure out what that food actually was. I don't even know if you're going to remember that little tidbit. Yeah, no, if, if I'm not mistaken, you know, I think they sell them at, uh, uh, they're like freeze-dried Japanese things, uh, like peas. And, and they look, I mean, they're, they're uh, a healthier version of it, like a, a cheese Whiz or something. Not cheese Whiz, uh, not even Cheez-Its, but uh, Cheetos, that's what it was. Mm, okay. uh, but smaller, everything was very delicate. and um, But they were kind of crunchy, so that made it more difficult to eat. Worrying about, you know, you have, you have to think of 15,000 things at once. You're about your voice, about the mask, about the nails, about the other actor, about the director, about the camera, the lighting, and so on. So it's, uh, it, it, hopefully it, it, none of that shows. Uh, hopefully it just, a character comes through. I mean, to me, I like to pay attention to these things because I was looking at it. I was like thinking it's like bagel chips with green beans with sour cream or something. Uh, but but it's really fascinating, like how sci-fi food is basically just normal everyday food, but they just do different things or juxtapose it next to other foods you wouldn't put next to. And suddenly it's space food. Right. Sure. So, yeah, we already mentioned Jonathan Frakes, who also gets to shove you around a little bit in that scene where you had yes, a little snack, yeah. which is fun. Yeah, that wasn't I, I don't think that was originally in the script. I think we added that. And, and we had, we you know. I had to work on the fight so that I wouldn't break, so he wouldn't break my back because he's a big guy, you know. But we worked it up so that that I would, my back would be in such a way that it hit the the softest part of my back against the wall, and uh, it. I, I mean, I, that scene was just very powerful for me as an actor. Just to, it, there was no acting involved. It was just reacting. It was doing what was natural to the scene. That's kind of like one of the biggest things we hear a lot on this show in particular when it comes to actors is reacting versus just reading lines. And, you know, yeah. for it to be realistic, you do have to react. And I feel like yeah. in, in the theater world, you can react in a different way because you're also feeding off of the emotions of the audience, what's going on that day, right. what's going on your day that, you know, in that right. what's going on in your life rather on that particular day. Uh, whereas TV, it's pretty much, you know, you have 30 minutes, let's get this shot, we got more stuff to do. Uh, right. So, you know, is that a challenge for you for someone who has done a lot of theater work? Yeah. No, it wasn't. It's just, it's an adjustment. I mean, in the theater, you have to project. Um, having, I, I just did a play in December and I had to adjust because I've been working so small mm. for so long that, uh, and I, I remember how to do it back from high school that I had to project to the back of the auditorium and were uh, suffered the wrath of my director, who was my mentor in, in high school, who put me on the path, really. He helped me decide to be an actor. So, uh, um, yeah. I do want to point out, too, the scene you have before uh, being pushed around by Frakes is also uh, one that didn't have Patrick Stewart this time around, but you did have Michael Dorn, Marina Sirtis, right. and Gates McFadden all in the same scene right. with you, which is right. does make for a really fun scene, the fact that you've got all these folks together, also incognito. Uh, right. playing which, Yeah, it's it's uh, it's a really good scene. I do like that one. How did you enjoy working with those folks, too? Everybody. They couldn't have been nicer and more... 
supportive. It, it was so easy. There was no, there were no nerves. It just, you just, it just happened organically. And, and they were just easy and fun to work with. Now, after your time on the Enterprise, Alan, you transferred over to Voyager. And uh, yes. we first saw you in the season three episode, False Prophets, as a Takarian sandal maker. Uh, this time, no crazy makeup, right? But uh, no, yeah. also no time on a starship. So a little bit of a different experience. Uh, how was that for you? Oh, it was fun. It was fun uh, working without a mask. I mean, the, 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 positive, the good thing about working with a mask is that they can bring you back. Yes. Because they don't recognize you from other characters. And so uh, I, I thought maybe this would be my last time just because of seeing my face, although it wasn't. Um, so it, this was the, the nevish guy that you were talking about, the poor sandal maker. Uh, but again, I, I, I had great fun working on all of them, working with the Ferengis, working with the, with the Leslie Jordan, right? Yeah, Leslie Jordan and Dan Shore were the yeah. two Ferengis. Right, right, right. And so it was uh, another great experience. And, and again, uh, Jerry Taylor facilitated all this. And, and well, Jerry Taylor along with Junie Taylor, uh, uh, Junie Lowry Johnson. The, uh, yeah, Larry Johnson. Yep. So she uh, she brought me in for several things. And let's not forget to Rob LaBelle. He was also the uh, Takarian assistant for the Frangies yes. as well. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, let's let's chat about your scene a little bit here with uh, with the two Frangies because you're basically on your knees crawling up these steps, saying your lines. Uh, that yeah. seemed uncomfortable for me. At least me watching it, that seemed like it wasn't pleasant to do. Oh, well, it, it was unpleasant as an actor. It was pleasant to do. I, I, I enjoyed. <laughs> doing something like that as you know as the sandal maker it was, it was unpleasant you know? but he needed to feed his family he needed to, what the Ferengis were going to offer I mean honestly I, I I haven't watched it I don't I tend not to go back and watch my work after the fact so I don't remember a lot of that so but some I'm getting flashes of it coming into my mind so. let me see if this is, refreshes your memory at all exploitation begins at home <laughs> I know, and everybody, exploitation begins at home. Yes, indeed. Yeah, there you go. And, you know, I actually <laughs> want to ask you a little bit, too, about the Ferengi. And I know you're not, like, a big Trekkie or anything like that, so I don't know how much you're aware right. of this, but, like, many times we've heard uh, comparisons of the Ferengi to Jewish stereotypes. You know, the fact that they're these, like, money-hungry, big-nosed kind of characters. You know, the very negative, horrible stereotypes. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts or if you've heard that before. I, I've never heard that before, but but I can see it. Uh, I, I, I'm friends of friends, and I've known Armin Shimmerman peripherally through friends. Uh, he worked at the Champlain Shakespeare Festival before I did, way back in the, the day in Burlington, Vermont. And so we have a lot of mutual friends. Um, in fact, when I, I think one of the shows that I was working, uh, Armin was working on uh, Deep Space, and uh, he had me into his trailer for lunch one day, so we were just chatting about our mutual friends and so on. And so, so Yes, I could see that, that comparison being made with the Jewish stereotype, but uh, I don't think that the, uh, certainly the sandal maker, I, I don't know that he was Jewish. <laughs> he was a nevish, but. Uh, and I should say, too, you know, we've had Armand on the show, and I actually asked him the same question, and he kind of felt that, you know, it wasn't necessarily uh, that it is that specific stereotype. It's because you know, he's done conventions around the world, and I'll tell you the story, too, Alan, since we're chatting about this. You know, he's okay. gone to conventions around the world, and he'll have, you know, in Australia, they'll ask him if it's, you know, based on this person, or he'll go to another country, and they'll ask if it's based on this person. And he always kind of pointed out as it's always like the downtrodden person who's trying to, like, make a life for themselves. That's who they kind of right. stereotype it for. So it's an interesting thing. I mean, that's where we felt it landed here in America, but it's always been kind of like that downtrodden person trying to called their way up. And I always feel like maybe the Ferengi is more like the American dream. You know, it's kind of like the immigrant story. Uh, and it was kind of caricaturized in some ways, um, but ultimately did grow into more of a three-dimensional kind of thing. But that's getting off off the top here. That's getting into right. Trekkie, nerdy <laughs> stuff here. But <laughs> yeah, let's let's talk about your uh, final experience in okay. Star Trek. And that would be one season later again of Voyager. Uh, that episode is Day of Honor. And you came back as a Katadi alien named Loomis. So again, yeah. I'm surprised you're telling me that makeup was not as horrible as what you did for Pomet. No, no, no. It did because wow. they're, they're they're not blending anything. It was uh, again. It was the eyes and the mouth. They have to glue that up, and and the neck. That neck was a little uh, uh, more difficult, I think, to blend into my chest than say because uh, uh, uranic was uh, bundled up. I think so. Uh, but no, it, it really I mean, it was a lot of stuff. You know, it's a big head. But um, no, it didn't really take much time at all. 
And I, I, I love working with those guys. They were a, a laugh riot. They really were a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm surprised too, you know, because uh, we're talking about just getting the makeup on and off too. And that was like a giant helmet that you were wearing. That's a giant piece of mask there. Yeah, like, yeah. How sweaty and uncomfortable is that? I mean, did that matter to you at all? Uh, you know, it, it is sweaty, uncomfortable. Uh, and you try when you're off camera to get near some air to just blow on it, to dry things up. And there are people around to towels and whatever you need to touch up the makeup. And, but again, like I said earlier, um, I was having so much fun and, and it's so great to be working and uh, I, sweating is the least of my worries. So. I'm going to throw something at you that's, again, a little bit nerdy in that same vein of what, what I just okay. mentioned moments ago about the Frankie, but not quite. So, uh, you know, also on this podcast, just interviewed a guy named Michael Krawick and okay. he played the other Katati alien that's in this episode. Okay. And I don't believe you guys ever crossed paths because I think he shot all the no. scenes solo. So I don't even know if you're aware, but, um, you know, in the there's a Star Trek, I guess, compendium or some kind of companion book where it basically refers to them as if they're one character, even though they're two different characters. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you remember anything about this. I don't know if you remember an introduction or anything where they say, hi, I'm this character. I'm Loomis. I'm not the person you just saw. I don't know if you do you remember anything no, like that? Okay, Nothing like that. No. I mean, what I remember from that episode was working with uh, Jerry Ryan. Yeah. Um, and she was terrific. It was it was her first big thing, I think, in, in Hollywood. Her dad was on the set. He was very excited to be there supporting his daughter. And and, uh, and she was fun. She was great fun to work with, as well as the, the guys. And I wanted to also uh, compliment you as well on some of your acting in this one, especially your body language uh, as this character, Loomis. Uh, I feel like you really shut off some, some of the amazing emotional and physical toll this alien has been through. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you also did a lot of fantastic acting with your eyes through that makeup. Like, you, you made it just feel like a very sympathetic character. Everything you were doing was Really wonderful. So I, I don't know again how much you remember of that performance, but walk us through I, how you how you went through this character. It, it's interesting, just because I haven't really revisited since back then. And now that you're talking about, it, we're talking about it, it. It does come back to me. That was very difficult for me. That scene where, uh, uh, but like all characters, you have to uh, sympathize with them, whether they're perceived as a bad guy from outside or not. But you can't play a bad guy to play this guy who's caught between the heart, uh, rock and a hard place and he's doing what he has to do to survive and, and it, it was very emotional it, it, I, I had to rein it in a little bit I found myself doing some things that were uh, uh, involuntary I was like okay what was that where did that come from but, but it, it was very emotional Loomis is really uh, an interesting character to look at because he, he's not like pathetic at all, but no, he's just no. very much like, you know, I, I'm trying to find the right word for it, but there's, you know, sympathetic is, is the first thing that comes to mind. Just everything about him is very much like he wants to be helped. He needs the help. He needs to help his community out there. And everything about right. him is just screaming, like, please help this poor, pitiful person. Right. But he's willing to do whatever he has to do, even if it's not so cool. You know? Yeah. So little known fact, I've forgotten. What is the, what was the show that, that followed Deep Space Nine? Uh, that would be Voyager. Okay, then what was that one after Voyager? Enterprise. Enterprise. Which which one was the? I think that was it. The, the, the holographic doctor. Uh, the holographic yeah. doctor was Voyager. Right. It was no 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 no. There was the uh, Robert Picardo. Yeah, that's in Voyager. It was Voyager. Yep. Wow, I thought it was another series. But anyhow, they were having a hard time casting that role. And I went in twice to the producers to oh. read the role. So I, again, I was a nervous wreck. I like never read for a, a series regular. And uh, Jerry Taylor, bless her heart, you know, had me in twice. And so I didn't get it, obviously, but uh, it was a great experience. Did you go back more than once for that role, or was it just kind of like a one? Yeah, I was. I, was I, get, I went in once, and then a period of time passed. And uh, as I said, I think they were having difficulty finding the right person for that role because they, they weren't sure exactly i think in the writing how he would be played how do you, how do you play a hologram you know is he uh, is he robotic is he just a human and is it a mix of those things so uh i think i worked with, with junie on that a little bit and uh, uh and then I, I don't know month later maybe i went in again 
read for the producers. That's always daunting. You know, you've got a room full of all these people who are deciding your fate and uh, they're deciding their fate as well. But uh, um, it, 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 it was fun. I, I, I always said, I try to have fun whenever I do this. Yeah, and seeing how Robert Ricardo looks and also what he did with the role, I can definitely see that being an Alan Altschild role as right. well. It's interesting. I, I, I had more hair in those days. You did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Alan, uh, what are you doing these days? Uh, I'm, I'm getting back into, I uh, just said, did a play in December uh, in, in Springfield, Missouri, with a dear friend of mine. It's a two person play. I haven't done a play in about 10 years. Uh, and there are only two people in this play. It's called Souvenir, about the life of uh, Florence Foster Jenkins, the socialite singer, quote unquote. Uh, Meryl Streep played her in the film of the same name, Florence Foster Jenkins. Uh, and I played the uh, her accompanist. So there's two people. So the first time in my life, I got to act, sing, and play the piano on stage. I was on stage nonstop for 90 minutes. I'm happy to say that uh, I can still remember lots of lines. <laughs> and uh, so getting back to theater was, was really wonderful. It was a strange experience because of COVID. So the audience was not as full as we would have liked it because everybody had to be spaced. Um, uh, but it, it was a wonderful experience working with a dear friend of mine I've known for many years, uh, who's an amazing actress and singer. Uh, she had to sing off key through the whole play. And then all of a sudden at the end, sing beautifully, perfectly, this classical music. And uh, it was, it was good to be back on the boards again. So I, I'd love to do more theater and I'm back. I'm doing lots of commercial auditions right now. and uh, It's a numbers game. So uh, I'll, uh, the more I, I do that, I've had several this week, so I'm bound to hit it soon. And I would like to, I, I, I flirted with the idea of, of rejoining the Star Trek universe. Uh, so that could, that could happen. I'm just uh, working on that. And a lot of my friends would say, well, why don't you do the conventions? Yeah. And I just, I'd never gotten around to it. And, and I, I've talked to someone, so, well, talk to so-and-so and they'll tell you what to do. And Armin was one of those people. And, and uh, I never heard back from him. So I said, okay, it wasn't meant to be. So um, it, it could still happen. And I talked to Walter about it. Walter does them all over the world. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, I didn't follow up on that. He, uh, his wife did give me the, the name of the person who uh, who helps him out with that. And I could tell you for sure folks would love to meet you, Alan. They'd love to hear your stories in person. And, you know, the fact that you haven't really done all these conventions either, that makes you a real hot commodity. Right. So you, you, right. need to, you need to jump on that. Well, okay. I will. You've inspired me. I will do that. Now, <laughs> I, I believe that, you know, there's, Things come into your life at the perfect time, and, and you were at the perfect time because, as I said, I haven't done many interviews at all, and I was questioning whether I would do this one. And went, Why not? So, I'm getting bold in my old age. <laughs> well, as I say at the end of every podcast, fortune favors the bold. So, <laughs> yes, there you go. <laughs> so, Alan, I want to lightning round you real quick with a few last questions before we wrap oh things up today. So, okay, all right. You can think as much as you want about these, but you really can't because I'm just going to throw them okay. right at you. So we're going to jump okay. right in now. So best day on a set and worst day on a set. Oh, gosh. The best day on a set uh, was um, I, I did. It was a commercial. That, uh, are these supposed to be Star Trek? It can be stage. Or? It can be screen. It can be theater, wherever you, wherever it was. Goodness gracious. I, I, I only remember, I remember what, what was recent, but there was a moment in, in when I was working with a director on a, it was a, what was it, uh, Spectrum, before they were Spectrum. I can't remember what they were. But I did this this character called uh, Tech Teddy. And uh, Tech Teddy was this nebbishy guy who was sent off to fix somebody's uh, uh, dish that wasn't working and accidentally went off out into space. And years later, they come back to see Tech Teddy. Got a full beard, and he's in this pod, wanting to go back home. And and again, this was it's a commercial, but I I, I so felt this, and I I could feel myself getting emotional talking about it now. But the director was just feeding me these lines, and I would just say the lines. It was just like no one else was on set. And this is what an actor loves: just that back and forth, and uh, and, and it was very emotional. It was 
Uh, I, I had people come after come up to me after we shot. They said that they were in tears. This is from a commercial, um, and so that was it was very moving. And the, the worst day on a set. Um, gosh, I, I know I'm supposed to come with come at this quickly. I even have okay. I, I missed an entrance uh, in a play in college. It was the day that I found out that I had been accepted into the actor's studio in the program. And all the two years before, they had been geared toward getting into that studio, and only a handful of people did. And I found out that day. That I was that evening. I was doing a play, uh, but I was distracted. It was very distracted. I was talking to somebody in the green room about getting into the studio and how wonderful that was. And the uh, Stage members came running into the green, saying, "Also on stage now!" And I said, "Oh my God!" And I flew. I had to put on this mask. It was a half mask, me and masks. Um, and I went out on stage. The poor actor, who's a wonderful actor, had to ad lib and rhyme couplets, and he did. <laughs> brought for what probably seemed like it, for me, it seemed like forever. And I, I got on stage and I said my lines. As I was, we had these. Uh, real candelabras up overhead and the one over my head was dripping wax. So I was saying my lines and the, the wax was dripping on my head and I just had to say my line and get off stage. That was one of the worst experiences. <laughs> I got to admit, that's a pretty horrific story. Yeah, that's a pretty oh, good one. Was. And I, I, I'm still uh, in contact with that actor I left on stage and he, uh, he remembers it exactly as I do it. <laughs> I'm sure he's not going to forget that. No, no, no. <laughs> so how about most challenging role that became the most rewarding for you? That would have to be uh, the play called uh, Anina Variations. And I play, it's an it's adaptation of the last scene from Chekhov's The Seagull. Not that Chekhov. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I played the writer, Treplev, throughout the play. And I had three different women playing uh, by Nina at different ages. Uh, it was a huge role, and it was very difficult um, emotionally, physically. And uh, I, I was persuaded to write the musical score for it as well. So that was nerve-wracking. In fact, I had to cut the music underscoring some of my scenes because it was so distracting to hear my music as this character um, so mostly it underscored other people's monologues and whatnot. Um, but it was ultimately one of the most rewarding experiences ever so for me. And of course, I'm thinking of a million other things now to replace that one, but uh, <laughs> another interview. You got to lock in one of them, right? It's, it's, only, it's, it's the best one of the day, basically, right? <laughs> right. right. That's what you get today. So how about uh, most valuable piece of advice that someone told you, whether it be about life or about acting, that you still hold on to and think about today? My father used to say, apply yourself. You have to apply yourself. And I, as a kid, I didn't know what that meant. And as an adult, now I know. And so I hear my father's voice saying, just have to apply yourself. If you do, then um, things happen when you do apply yourself, when you put your brain in the right place and you believe in what you do and what you want to do, what brings you joy, which is why I, I'm still an actor. There's nothing else that, that brings me joy like it does. Great answer. Now, last thing for today, Alan, what is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? That so many people are touched by it. And so many people uh, follow it still after all these years. Um, and <laughs> On a low level, it's nice to still get residuals from all of these places around the world. But uh, yeah, just the people. And I get lovely fan mail from all around the world. Um, people are very so thoughtful. And they, they write these long and they send me photographs to, to either keep or to autograph and send back. Them. And I, I try to do that as much as possible. Um, so that it's, it's the fans, I think. 
Well, Alan, thank you so much for sharing all your stories today, not just about Star Trek, but about everything else you do, uh, letting Thanks. us get to know you a lot better. Because again, as you mentioned, and I've, I've mentioned, you, know, you have, I know you haven't done a lot of these, and I'm yeah. honestly very appreciative and grateful that you were willing to do this with me. I know you were a little trepidatious because it's yeah. a Star Trek show. Who knows what the hell I'm going to ask? But uh, you know, well, thank you for. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. It was, it was much easier than I thought it would be. So, and you that so. So, and my goal is 2023. Alan Altschuld at the Star Trek Las Vegas mission event. Okay, why not? I'll, I'll see if Walter's going. Let's see if we can go together. Carpool, yeah, why not? There's <laughs> no weekend at the pool. I'll fly pool. All right, well, thank you, Alan. Thank you, Matthew. All right. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Until next time, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Trek Untold, all one word. If you'd like to directly support this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter over on patreon.com slash trekuntold, which gives you access to some great perks that can't be beat. Or pick up some merchandise from our store, or use my Amazon shop link to check out all kinds of different Star Trek merchandise. Links for all these things are in the show notes. Shout out to Triple Fiction Productions for being a key sponsor of Trek Untold. Don't forget to check them out and all of the fine folks whose ads you've seen or heard on this podcast, too. If you have any questions, feedback, or comments for the show, or would like to suggest a guest or discuss sponsorship options for any of these episodes in the future, send me a message at trekuntold at gmail.com. I hope to see you here again as we uncover more untold stories from Star Trek and beyond and get to know even more amazing people who have contributed to this ever-expanding universe. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by Treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms, is powered by the RageWorks Podcasting Network, and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.